This is the soundtrack series. the new soundtrack series. I'm Dana Rossi, and this is all new. We used to be a podcast where I would talk for a little while about something that was going on in music, and then we would feature a story that we had recorded at one of our live shows, told by, you know, one person at a time, that kind of thing, and now we're not. We're not doing that anymore. We are, we're doing something else, starting now. Crystal Heart. Straight to the point. Nightlight. Savrin. The 11th Hour. The Demands. Lorraine. Childhood and The Earwigs. The Amazing Man Band. Territorial Pissings. Pink Sweat. Red Velvet. Ultrasound. Iridescent Dreams. The Young Suburban Cowboys. The Good Old Boys. William James Said. Dot, dot, dot. The Benson Ash. These are the most legendary bands you've never heard of. The ones that were started in high school. I talk to people whose band lasted one rehearsal, to people whose band ended up in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this is what they had to say. This is a look at the time and the place where rock begins. The moment a group of kids are sitting around someone's basement and one of them says, let's start a band. The interesting thing is, we were all just outcasts. Uh, we, it wasn't that we were so antisocial, but I think we were just kind of young and depressed. So we weren't getting attention from anybody and we didn't want attention from anybody. The freaks have to band together and you just, you, you have to make your own scene. We have to go back to 1963. Uh, I was a sophomore in high school and uh, this young freshman showed up, Vince Fernier, who eventually would go on to become Alice Cooper. And we became friends and art class. We started this band and it, and it, it changed our social standing fr- from being kind of outcast in seventh grade to like being really cool without actually being in any sort of group. Does that make sense? Because we weren't, we weren't friends with the band guys. They were nerds. We weren't like jock guys. We weren't like heads, which was like all the stoner kids. And we weren't the kickers, which was all the cowboy guys. But all of them thought we were cool because we had a band. And I think we were originally called the Outcats. Adam Sultan. And I had a logo all set up for us. And somehow that changed the demands which was going to be awesome because our first album was going to be called Meet the Demands. Steve and I started playing when I was younger, when I was like 15, and he was 16 and a half, Steve 17, when he got a car. I met him in an art class. Drew Hasuski. He was really into Helmet, and I happened to like Helmet because they were one of the bands that I just thought was just different. So we kind of hit it off, and then I was in my art class, and when I wasn't like stealing rubber cement to huff in math class, I was painting awful paintings of like Kurt Cobain and... He gave me a ride home one day. We get into talking about, like, we should jam. He's like, yeah, I, I play bass. I'm like, oh, I, I play guitar. So we kind of hung out a little bit, but we never. So finally, it was like the last week of school. He comes over and we jam, and we jam in my garage. At first, uh, it was just me and a couple friends, and we just put it together to do the Battle of the Bands that my chemistry teacher put together. I presented to the Letterman's Club, hey, we can make fun of these long hair Beetle guys, and we'll do a spoof. Dennis Dunaway. We'll do. We'll be the earwigs, and we will do a, a performance where we change the lyrics to Beatles songs to be sports oriented. Being in a band was just this nice way of kind of being in a gang. 
Carrie Clark. <laughs> Being in a really, really dorky gang that actually did stuff. So that was pretty badass. I was a total freak, but my friends were total freaks. And we really, we made the best of it. It started with, I had an acoustic guitar that was my mom's. And um, I basically just started playing it. I never learned how to play it. I just played it and like made noises with it and started singing. And I had a tape recorder and I just recorded myself singing and playing guitar and doing weird little songs. And I called myself, because I was a big fan of Nine Inch Nails, I was like, if you're one person, you can call yourself someone else. So I was like, he's a one man band, I'll be a one man band. And I called myself Nightlight. And my first album was called, I think, Nightlight. I think it was self-titled. Me and my buddy Fish, who worked together in a restaurant, and we would have uh, chicken cutting parties, we would call them, where um, one of us would, would butterfly the chicken, the other one would pound it. So as we were pounding the chicken, we would start like making up songs to the beat of the pounding. At this point, I was still like singing opera and playing like classical piano. So this was like my first experience doing anything that wasn't so rigid. Alexandra Kalinowski. I didn't know how to improvise. Like, I had no idea what I was doing. When they were like, oh, you know, just play something, I would just freeze. It was very scary. I had been taking voice lessons since I was 11. Elizabeth McQueen. Always in, like, a classical style. So I knew a lot at 16 or whatever. I knew a lot about breath support and sustaining notes. But I didn't really know a lot about, like, singing rock and roll or prog rock at all. You have to let the beast loose in order to sing rock and roll. I had been a musician starting in grade school and played in the school orchestra violin. I was homeschooled up until high school. Justin Han. So freshman year of high school, I'm suddenly, we move from Southern California to Oregon and I'm thrust into public school for the first time. But if I had never been put in public school, I never would have met these people, never would have joined this band and I would have kept uh, playing slow, low classical piano this whole time and hating it. I didn't have a lot of friends in high school. I didn't really hang out with people. I just kind of stayed to myself. Mark Landers. Just kind of wanted to keep it to myself. I mean, I probably, if I had the confidence, would have tried to rope other people in. And there was a group of kids in the drama club with me who were also musicians. And I sat with them at lunch every day, but they always just spent the whole time making fun of me and making me feel like I didn't belong. It was not a very good experience school for me. It was... It wasn't fun. I felt directionless. Johnny Gowdy. And kind of lost in this preteen hormonal insanity that takes over your brain. And, and I really uh, I really did go into like a puberty thing where I, I retreated uh, from, so <laughs> from society kind of. But when I saw Cheap Trick play and, I, and subsequently this girl, <laughs> Veronica, Veronica, told me that she she would sleep with a dude that played guitar then I was in Miami at that at that time when I saw that show when I returned to Texas to the woodlands I I got together with my best friend and I was like we have to start a band how are we going to do this we were both into metal at the time I think we were probably in ninth grade and decided we should have a band together Rico Galliano but the only instruments we had were his electric guitar and his mom's organ, <laughs> like one of those kind of church organ-y things that you would sometimes find in people's houses in the 70s with two keyboards. And we tried to do Iron Maiden's The Trooper <laughs> on organ and guitar. We had no drums or bass. And uh, I was supposed to sing it. And of course, the lead singer of Iron Maiden has an impossibly operatic high soprano voice, which I couldn't ever hope to match. We realized this very quickly. And uh, 
I think we just gave up pretty much immediately. It never played out, thank God. We were all obsessed with the band Soul Coughing, and we just ripped them the fuck off. Nat Cassidy. We wanted nothing more than to be Mike Doty and uh, a bunch of cool New York downtown boho rapper, whatever the fucks you want to call them. My friends and I, and I don't know how this happened, I think it was like after acting or rehearsing our high school play that year, Tom Jones, we were sitting around and thought it would be hilarious if we came up with a, a rap band similar to the Beastie Boys. It was by default a Guns N' Roses cover band. Maria Raha. But I'm not sure if it was supposed to be a Guns N' Roses cover band or if it just was because those were the songs that the guys in the band could play. <laughs> my um, guitar teacher also taught Slash, who also went to my high school. And he was in, just remember, he would hang out on the other side of the, the courtyard during lunch with his like kind of long-haired heavy metal guys and... And uh, they would they would play like Zeppelin covers at parties and things like that pre Guns N' Roses. They weren't going to become famous or anything like that in in my eyes. You know, it was more like the demands were going to kind of kind of sweep everybody off their feet, and we'd get all the the fame and the glory. You look at Guns N' Roses and you look at Poison, and you say these are rock stars. These dudes have the lifestyle. They live this life that's incredible, and they have everything that's awesome. And then I see Nirvana, and I see. Here's three friends playing music, and that's all I really wanted to do was play music with my friends. So Nirvana was like, you can play music with your friends and make a career out of it, and that's kind of why that worked out the way it did. I really wanted to be in a band, and I really wanted to be like included with the Nirvana heads. Jordan Clifford. And the Nirvana heads are like kind of druggies and kind of like depressed all the time in, in almost a way where... It was cool to be depressed, so that's what I internalized and decided that I was going to be depressed and that would be cool. And I would like, I would just act depressed around them, hoping that they would be like, oh, what's wrong? Trent Reznor to a certain extent. Um, I mean, I was into a lot of different music. The Beatles, Led Zeppelin were big classic, were my favorite classic rock bands. And then I was into Soundgarden and... And um, but I guess Trent Reznor doing his own thing was a, was a, was an impetus. We decided to, um, to call ourselves Territorial Pissings, which is the name of a Nirvana song, and it was also the only song that we played. We wanted to basically be their replacements. Dave Hill. Husker Du and Led Zeppelin combined or something. I was raised on, on music, but I was raised on, on, you know, everything, you know, from the Beatles on, but, like, stuff never really got that radical. And when I first heard punk music, I heard it on my own when I was, like, I guess eight or nine or something on the radio i heard uh the sex pistols on like the college radio station with my friends and and we really thought it was it was very funny music but i but when i when i started ha meeting punks and stuff like at school they kind of scared me me and all the people involved with it were really kind of punk rockers and new wavers we were really into the clash and the cure and anything else this was kind of like the late 80s so anything the smiths like all of that stuff that was at the time very underground especially for like a suburb of pittsburgh in the late 80s heavy on the eurythmics heavy on depeche mode heavy on the thompson twins heavy on the Susie and the banshees so it was like i mean it was 1984 to 1986 at its best 80s 
synth pop bands. The one song that really comes to mind is the um, High on You. I always wanted to be that big, full, very optimistic, like just really happy sounding 80s synth pop band. We had a great time dancing around to the Go-Go's. I worshipped Joan Jad. I loved Cyndi Lauper. It was like the time when I grew up was like really ripe for um, really great female performers who weren't traditional at all. One of my first albums was Tragic Kingdom. Like I grew up with Gwen Stefani and Garbage and these like amazing female rock and roll musicians. Didn't have a guitar yet, but totally wanted to be Joan Jett or um, Angus Young, one of the two. I went over to England and I think it was like 1974, 73 or 74, and I saw Susie Quattro on Top of the Pop. Kathy Valentine. And she was the first uh, woman I had seen that was like a, a rockin', rock and roll woman on stage playing an instrument, looking like the guys in the bands that I liked. That was pretty mind-blowing for me, seeing Susie, and that was when I came home and got an electric guitar and decided I was going to be in a band. We would, we would play air band all the time when I was a kid. We put on the Go-Go's and play air band, me and my sisters, like every day over the summer. From the time I saw that a, a, a female could do it, you know, I was off and running. And aside from Susie Quattro, I thought I was the only girl that wanted to do this. And I found out about the Runaways. And one of the things I, I'm sad about nowadays is that I didn't know about, like, Fanny and some of the women who started bands in the 60s and 70s that had kind of gone before me and the Runaways. I think it would have been cool to have more um, knowledge of women in, in, in rock history that had started bands. I didn't know any girls like me that wanted to be in a band. I didn't know anybody. So I had to kind of, you know, take my best friend who was like the same music I did and but had not gone to England and had not seen it with Dizzy Quattro and say, hey, let's do this. It'll be cool. I like the way on the wind blows Down a crowd across the hill There is a place to all make All I ever wanted to do was sing. The reason I played bass is because everybody else chose an instrument before me, and that's what was left. To be honest, like, it, I wasn't a very good singer. I don't actually understand why they picked me, like, unless I was just the only person they auditioned. The, th the thing we didn't actually have, we had a bunch of original tunes, but no lyrics and no one to sing them, which in hindsight, I think we could have pulled it off if we knew what we were doing, but instead we started auditioning um, other singers that we put out ads for record stores this is before the internet and uh we'd get these kind of nerdy guys or creepy manson types like we had you just anybody we found was like nope this this person's a douche we can't deal and drummers we had like we had a different drummer like every few months like that's when i started learning to play drums just because we couldn't have a drummer for more than like a month we even got my friend chris's little brother bruce who who i didn't really like very much because he was a year younger than us and i thought it was lame that we had this drummer that didn't even have a hi-hat he had he had two cymbals that were that were on top of each other that he he tied a shirt over so he could never open his hi-hat <laughs> We didn't actually have very good equipment. I don't think I had an, an amp at that point, and uh, the bass player had a crappy bass, and I don't know, we went, wound up working summer jobs to, to get equipment. Um, actually, we, ac we actually worked at a, uh, 
at one of those concession stands at like a circ at like a circus thing where you'd throw a ball in the hoop, that kind of thing, and we would actually steal money from the um, either bribe the customers or, or steal money from our money bags, and that's how I wound up getting an, an amp. So Fish played the keyboard and would do percussion. Tom Lupacino. Romeo played guitar and I and I was the vocals or the the front man and then I'd occasionally also sometimes if we wanted to get goofy I'd bring bust out a kazoo or start like blowing into a beer bottle but like a flute my dad would take my 45-pound piano down to my car we had you know a, a baby grand in our house but I wasn't gonna take Ben Folds initiative and actually cart that thing around to gigs we all kind of reached a point where we were all playing an instrument uh, independently Tom Pogue. Uh, I played guitar. Another friend of mine played guitar. And a friend played drums. And uh, another friend who played guitar who I think just decided, well, then I'll, I'll try bass. Uh, and we just thought this will be another thing we can get together and do other than play video games and watch movies and just general nerd stuff. Like, yeah, we should, we should play a band. Why don't we play our instruments at the same time? That, that rehearsal was the beginning and end of our band. Before we played the show, none of us had practiced together. John Canuli. So we individually learned the songs, and then we met together backstage and did like a mental playthrough one time, and then we went out on stage and did the entire show. It turned into us trying to teach each other the song, either the most recent song we had learned or the song we knew the, the most like that we were that we had perfected and for whatever reason I had just recently learned that thing you do from the Tom Hanks film that thing you do they invited me to like come to a rehearsal which was held they had they went to an actual like rehearsal space um that i think had like if i remember correctly there was like a soundboard a production room and everything and we would just practice. We rehearsed in the living room. I've got a picture of me rehearsing in, in my living room. It wasn't even like we were in a garage or trying to be really like rock and roll. This is right the le the most suburban rehearsal, <laughs> most suburban attempt at we're going to get together, let's play a let's play a song from a hit Tom Hanks movie in a finished basement and we decided at the end that we should never attempt it again and we were better off just keeping our instruments our own separate hobbies we had to rotate which house we rehearsed at because if we played at vince's house too often the neighbors would get all upset and if we played at my house too often so we'd like whenever we would play we'd be we'd have to be outside and somebody would call the cops. We'd meet after school, walk or take a bus home to our base's house and just rock out for like three hours or something and pretty much thought we were gonna be total rock stars and our, our notes reflected this. Like we had, we had foreseen that we'd be on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine in 1990 or something and uh, sell 100 million copies. In our first band, we spent so many, so much time drawing like giant stages with us on it, <laughs> and just kind of like visualizing what we were gonna do, and then we'd be playing someone's living room for an actual gig for no money. We played in a bass player's garage, and it was just that energy of being in a high school band where it's more just about, well, being friends and just making each other laugh, but then also the fact that like you hit a chord through a, an amp and it's like the most amazing, it's like you invented it. Like, I invented this G power chord. When you first learn drop D tuning, 
you feel like you are unstoppable in the fucking rock world because drop D tuning makes every song sound fucking badass. And you can do the coolest little riffs with drop D tuning because it's simple. So we rehearsed in Dylan's parents' attic, which was a thousand degrees. It was no nonsense. We would sometimes talk for a little bit, but it was like so hot that it was unbearable to be there for anything other than hard work. Our guitarist was very, very lazy. So we'd always have to like try to come up with ways to get him to get to practice. And I remember very distinctly for some reason this one time uh, on a Saturday morning, I was trying to get him to go to practice and I called him and I was like, hey Tyler, it's time to wake up and smell the record deal, man. We're on a roll right now, we gotta make it. And you know, we weren't in any way, but like I was in trying to, I think, you know, rouse him up or delude him into getting in and actually doing the hard work of practicing music I was also trying to psych myself up for it because then we'd get into studio and we'd play like half a song or a whole song through and then just start hanging out One, two. the undercurrent is always sex when when music is played properly uh, we, we got it into our heads that there was a another girl in our uh, circle of friends that would actually be a really good lead singer for uh, <laughs> a Velvet Underground and Nico cover of uh, uh, the song Femme Fatale and I was in love with this girl so it, it was an amazingly handy excuse for me to form this band because I just wanted to hang out with her and be with her Oh, I have her play keyboards in the band, and then that way she'll want to go out with me again. I definitely performed with that band because I had a huge crush on the drummer. Two guys who were madly in love with this girl who had no interest in either one of them, you know? Some girl that lived up the street that I've never spoken to. I rode the bus with that fucking girl every day for years. She walks up the driveway to the garage door. She's like, hey. And I'm like, hey. She's like, I didn't know you played an instrument. I'm like, oh, yeah, I just started playing like a couple months ago or whatever. And she's like, that's pretty cool. So you guys like have a band? I was talking to this girl who wouldn't give me the time of day. Never talked to her again after that day. She never spoke to me again. I don't blame her. But there was a moment where I was like, this is kind of cool. Somebody talked to me. There's kind of that stereotype of the guys in the band getting more girls that way. No guys ever came out of the woodwork. Being a girl in a band does not get you dudes. It, it, it's, it's like a dude repellent. Boys have very, very fragile egos. High school is all about finding your own way to shine. And if the band is that way or whatever it is, if a girl's on stage and she's rocking it, that's intimidating and guys can't stand that. We booked a show at the Roxy, yeah, on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. We played, uh, there was a little club in a, a, a town close by to Austin that let us play on play there. And when I was 16, Doug Strom let me come up and sit in with his band. Our first gig was the school talent show. It was mostly, we literally played pretty much just a cover set of obscure Nirvana songs. The first parts of the first Foo Fighter record, because that had just come out. I had never played in front of people, and I never wanted to be a singer, and the first thing I had to do was play in front of people and sing, because the first song we did was mine. It wasn't fun. I barely remember, like I remember so many other things about being up there, but I barely remember actually doing it. 
it wasn't the greatest thing in the world. It was the most, like, it wasn't even terrifying. I was just uncomfortable. It was like a thing you could do in L.A. as a kid. You could, like, ba- kids' bands played at the Whiskey and at the Roxy. But what they would do is they would put you at, like, 6 p.m. on a Friday. Like, it was very much like a kid's show. So it was, like, 6 p.m. on a Friday, and they would give you tickets. And you had to sell a certain amount of tickets. Well, we played, uh, we played Kayla's 12th birthday. <laughs> Like that kind of stuff, like friends' living room things, and then also uh, we made a big production about about our <laughs> our weekend rehearsals. Like we'd rehearse in the garage with the garage door open, so that we could get a crowd. So we didn't actually like play out that much. We would invite people to the garage once in a while, and we had a couple. We had about a handful of shows, like these socialite parties in Bel Air and stuff like that, and charge way too much for the parents of the girl we were playing for. The keyboard player, Andy, and his father, his name was Van Harris, and Van was a professional comedian. Richie Rano. He was on uh, the Tonight Show a couple times, and he was really big in the Catskills. And one day he came into the basement, and he said, you guys want a gig? And it's the first time I ever heard that word. And we said, uh, okay. And he said, okay, good. I'm going to get you this summer in uh, one of the resorts up there. And it's exactly what he did. We played seven days a week, and then we only had to play an hour at the, at the resort. And then we would get bungalow colonies and other places, hotels or wherever, to go after that. And we'd go drive over, and we were just like 16, 17 at the time. And we'd drive over and play. So we'd do like two gigs a night. It was great. I think we had uh, an actual sound check. We were like 15 and having a sound check and I didn't even know what a monitor was. Like I didn't understand that I could ask to hear myself. I had no idea. We, we tried out to be in the Battle of the Bands talent show and um, so that was our first show was the audition. And it was the first time we played in front of anybody else. Like, I don't even think we, any, I don't think our friends heard us or even our parents. And so we auditioned, our first show was this audition. And much like uh, in Back to the Future, they sort of stopped us in the middle and were like, that's, that's quite all right. <laughs> and and we, they rejected us like flat out from getting into the middle school talent show. Halfway through our set, they killed it, and then they turned the jukebox up. And, and, you know, we were so upset because we were keeping our best stuff for last. We were the closing act for Junior Cabaret. We went over by about five minutes. And whatever, I don't know, really fascist teacher that was running the talent show, the cabaret, I don't remember what teacher it was, pulled the plug on the microphone to make us stop playing. But the band couldn't hear that, and I had no idea why. I wasn't able to hear myself in the microphone and why the microphone wasn't working. So I just kept screaming and singing with no mic (laughs) and they just kept playing. After the curtain closed, we're like, man, you know, that was cool. That was beyond a joke. Let's uh, let's learn how to play instruments and keep this going. We actually did play a gig. That was the first gig I played as a musician. And it was in the lobby of a Jamba Juice. And I'm sure you can imagine a Jamba Juice is not acoustically designed to host any sort of live music. We played a gig at a local pizza place, and the deal was all the pizza we could eat if we play there. We played, people were walking out. One customer said they couldn't eat in a room where there was a band with the earwigs painted on the bass drum. The owner's like seven-year-old son immediately 
ran out of the room, running at full speed with his hands over his ears because we sounded that awful. It kind of led to bigger things because we got so used to emptying rooms that we almost tried to shock people. We're called Red Velvet, but we decided uh, before the high school talent show performance that maybe it wasn't the coolest name we could think of. So we, we got it in our heads to change our name to Ben Sin Ash. We play the gig, and we're playing Another Brick in the Wall Part 2 by Pink Floyd. So I decide after that guitar solo, we're going to do it. We're going to change our name to The Benson Ash, and we're going to eat your mind. (laughs) And with that, we went back into the final verse, and we destroyed it, and I think we won the talent show for, like, Best Band or something like that. I'd like to call your attention to the fact that we just now changed our name. We are no longer Red Velvet. We're now called the Benson Ash. And we're going to eat your mind. We don't need no education. We spent the rest of the night at Mel's Drive-In talking about how awesome we were, how great the show was. We couldn't wait for another one. And then we never played one again. That was the only show we ever did. We just played the one gig, and then we were going to do more, and then it just kind of fizzled out. It's, you know, hard to to hold a band together when, you know, everyone's teenagers and don't have the same, like, plot for world domination for rock. We played one gig. I remember driving in our Volkswagen Dasher with the entire band and all of our equipment, the keyboard, the guitar, and everything, and and my dad's Dasher station wagon with the back trunk open so that my friends could actually sit with their legs dangling out the back because that's the only way we could fit like four guys and all of our equipment into one car. And we drove to this party. We set up. It was the first gig I ever played with any band. We were very nervous. We drank a lot of probably wine coolers and were... Uh, tipsy enough that we actually went through this and people loved it and I remember us doing like three songs and people loving it and that's it and we never did it again it was really the last gasp of high school it was the last thing that we kind of did before people went off to college I think I was never invited back for another gig <laughs> we, we played one more gig it was a it was a high school dance and we got booed off the stage because it was the late 90s into the early 2000s, and and people did not want to hear classic rock at their school dance. They wanted to hear I'll Be Missing You or whatever the fuck people were dancing to at that time. And I think it was that show that our drummer told us he was quitting because he wanted to join a Christian rock band. And so that was the the end of the Benson Ash and Red Velvet. We didn't go on after that. The only other statement that we made as a band was we were we were fucking furious, as if we like deserved to be in it uh, in this talent show after one practice for the worst Nirvana song. And so like we like stormed out of the the auditorium, which is connected to the cafeteria in the school, and we just like stormed around throwing chairs and like kicking things and like like doing whatever rock star things we could to express our anger. It's funny that we came together for this like one show and then all parted ways and went on with our lives in like completely different directions. I assume that Steve Brown and I would always be writing music. I never I never expected him to go to the Navy. I never expected that. That was that was that sucked. I think it sucked more. Definitely, on a, I mean, 
on a music level, yeah, but I think it sucked on a very personal level. No one clicked like Steve and I, and that was really, it was him and I that did all this stuff. I was his closest friend. Like, he had stuff at home that wasn't he wasn't happy with, with his family, and he spent a lot of time in my house, and it was this really great, I, I made the best friend of my life through this. So it really just became that, and then eventually he decided that he needed to join, he needed to do something with himself. He was like 18 or 19. He joined the Navy, and he left, and that was the only person that I really like played music with and my friend Chris the guitar player was like we're gonna still do this man and I knew that wasn't gonna Chris never showed up essentially speaking like they had already lost the band quote unquote but now I lost the person that like I just played music with like every other day the lead guitarist was the most stereotypical lead guitarist you could get where he wants all the attention on him he started wanting to sing more in the songs. He started wanting to do more of the songs he wrote until finally we were all like, we have to kick this guy out. But with him gone, even though he was a big, big egomaniac, he was still one of the driving forces. So with him gone, I think everybody else just kind of was already pretty passive. So just we practiced less and less. Everyone else in the band is pretty content to do their own thing that was not music. I wish I had the story of like taking your typical uh, band journey and like cramming it into an hour or two hour rehearsal where we reached a point where we broke up and everybody got mad at each other because somebody, somebody immediately found a girlfriend or something within that first half hour and they ruined the group. And then the last half hour, we got back together like somebody, oh, you know what? I was sitting in that chair over there. I decided to come over. You want to let's jam one more time for the fans uh no we've finished went through everybody's song and then just kind of maybe i feel like it devolved into just each of us then playing someone else's song or trying to learn it and then looking at one another and going yeah this isn't gonna work being in a band is hard it's four to eight personalities clashing at all times trapped in a a, a fucking metal box on a road two in the morning everyone smells everyone's hungry someone stole your cigarettes i don't think i'd want to do that forever we ended up growing up instead what who knew who knew we'd wake up from this nightmare called high school and only one of us yours truly would remain a musician the only person that ever frowned on my music musical aspirations was my dad but i didn't live with him and he wasn't a big part of my life and he took it all back when i got successful it's like, I've got my Go-Go's records right next to my Merle Haggard records. That was the end of the earwigs. We became the spiders and, and started the spider sanctum. We built our own creepy stage and we turned into a completely different band. But it was the end of this wonderful period of these wide-eyed kids that just wanted to learn how to play instruments and become a band. We probably never broke up. We just, we just disbanded for a while. We recorded, I think, four or five songs. I do still have a tape of that, which I keep safely in a locked box at home to trot out occasionally for nostalgia purposes and to remind myself that I wasn't as cool as I sometimes think I was back in high school. Uh, there, there used to be a tape of us, but at some point in my later teens, uh, I found that tape and we listened to it, and it was so bad that I... I <laughs> When I was like 16, I thought it was going to hurt my career, so I destroyed it. I would give anything to have that tape right now. 
I always wanted to be a rock star, and I just spent a lot of time getting my demons out through music. If you were the type of person that felt weird or different or odd, it could probably lead to a lot of other issues that I was able to avoid by being a dork in a band. You know, ever since I was probably like seven or eight years old, I just wanted to rock. Any chance we got, we pretty much just screamed and wailed and threw things. Rock and roll was lucky to have us. Nothing was an obstacle. I didn't have to belong to any kind of group. I was a dude in a band. This has been I'm in a Band, an audio documentary produced by yours truly and the soundtrack series. I want to thank, get comfortable, this is a lot of people. I want to thank everybody who contributed a story. Adam Sultan, Alexander Kalinowski, Carrie Clark, Dave Hill, Dennis Dunaway, Drew Hasusky, Elizabeth McQueen, John Canuli, Johnny Gowdy, Jordan Clifford, Justin Han, Kathy Valentine, Mark Landers, Maria Raja, Nat Cassidy, Rico Galliano, Richie Rano, Tom Lupacchino, Tom Pogue. They are good. I collected those stories over this summer, and those 19 or so people contributed to me having one of the best summers of my life. I also want to thank the brilliant Daniel Sears for the additional editing he did on this project as well as Pete Bover, the magic man, who is the brains behind the mechanics of delivering this podcast to your ears. Also, a special thanks to Adam Sultan and The Demands, Drew Hasusky and Saverin, Nat Cassidy and Red Velvet slash The Benson Ash, all of them for letting me use their music and Pink Floyd's music, in Nat's case, in this episode. Also, big additional thanks to Alexander Kalinowski. You may have noticed a new theme song. At the very top of this show, well, she wrote that. And thanks, as always, to you for making the jump with us, for following us as we start doing this thing we're going to do now, talking music in our own little pillow fort. This is the Soundtrack Series. Thanks for listening.